This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is up on Center Stage, the show about the arts and the artists behind their work. Let's talk about what is binge-worthy, and today I am not speaking about television or a film. I want to speak to you about a historic marathon performance going on at Alice Tully Hall at Lincoln Center on October 21st. Pegasus, the orchestra, with their magnificent conductor, Karen Hakobian, will be presenting all five of Rachmaninoff's great piano orchestral masterpieces in one evening with five different soloists. Renowned pianists Dominic Cayley, Nadezhda Valeva, Feifei Dong, Konstantin Sukovetsky, and Ina Falix will be setting the concert hall ablaze with piano concerti 1 through 4 and the Rhapsody on a theme of Paganini. This is a rare and audacious event for a single concert, a daring move from Maestro Hakobian, but something tells me that this will be a night to remember. So let's get to know the personalities behind the performers here. I have with me today two of the pianists who are based in Los Angeles, Dominic Cayley and Ina Felix. Let's begin with Dominic, a concert pianist who won the Concert Artist Guild Award in 2017 and recorded his Noxos release of the music of Clementi in that same year. When he is not concertizing or composing, he is offering his skills as faculty at the legendary Colburn School of Music. But he has another passion, which keeps his body and mind in tune with his career, and that is training for triathlons. Performing the Rachmaninoff Piano Concerto Number no. 1 in the Pegasus Rachmaninoff Project is Dominic Cayley, a pianist whose talent is as large as is his dedication to training for Ironman triathlons. Dominic, welcome to Center Stage. So great to be here. It's fabulous to have you. You're out in Los Angeles, I understand. Yep, sunny L.A. right now. So I know it's fall in some parts of the world, but, you know, it's still <laughs> 70 and sunny every day out here. So Oh, the Beach Boys and the whole thing and the surf. So let's talk just for a minute. I don't want to get into piano right away. I want to talk about triathlons because you make a point of putting that up on your website. So, so this must be important to you. Tell me, is it the same discipline that's reserved for being a musician that goes into training your body? Absolutely. So... By no means am I a professional triathlete. That's a hobby of mine, my most passionate one. And I've always seen a lot of parallels between sports, athletics, physical activity, and the piano. And as a teacher and as an educator, that's something that I speak a lot to my students and, and in my master classes about, that the instrument, as artistic as it might be, is still a physical one. And particularly in this Rachmaninoff Marathon, uh, taking care of your body, your mind, your spirit is super important in the preparation and in the execution of, of the, the concerti. So, um, yeah, for me, it's, it, it's, a, it's an avenue to stay in shape, to, uh, f to be healthy, and also to uh, push myself in, in ways that um, I'm not always you know, comfortable in. So uh, the, triathlon has been a real source of calm and sort of an objective Activity because music can be very subjective, as we all know, uh, and you're always second guessing things, trying to figure out better ways to find beauty in your art. But in triathlon, you know, you, you finish at you know seven hours and two minutes. That's your time. It's very black and white, so to speak. And I think that that's a really nice uh, opposite sort of activity in that sense, an objective activity for me to be a to be a part of, and that's also enjoy fun. the outdoors. Yeah, exactly. There is that bonus. Yes. I think it's amazing. I've never spoken to a musician yet who has actually boasted about this. And I, oh. I think this is really interesting. It shows the real side of every professional performer. 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. And, you know, this, the same kind of mental fortitude that you must have uh, in a, you know, six to eight hour plus event um, mm. triathlon is, is pretty similar, actually, to being on stage and, and doing uh, marathon concerts such as the Rachmaninoff on. Well, for, for Karen, the, the, the conductor, of course, uh, he's going to have a true five five concerti marathon. But it, there's many parallels, both mental, mental and physical that I see. And again, they always talk about the, the value of swimming for musicians. They talk about the value of running and biking. These are all uh, very low-impact uh, sports on, on, on the joints. So that's also a reason why I, I you know, partake, I would say. out of This is fantastic. Good for you. Thank Good you. for you. I'm struck in doing research about you. I mean, not only the triathlons, but also the fact that you're so uh, wedded to community and the art of giving back. Can, can you talk to us about that? Absolutely. So um, one thing that I've made a point in my career and my life is been wherever I'm living, whether it's New York City, New Haven, Connecticut, Los Angeles, or St. Louis, where I was born and raised, is to be involved in the community that you're you're in. So from a young age, my father, who is in who was a professional jazz saxophone player, turned into the technology field. But he played actually flute. Um, he was an amateur flip flautist. And him and I played in my early years in nursing homes, retirement homes, churches, and different facilities in the St. Louis area. And that instilled in me just this value of, of giving back, being a part of the community. So um, to come to today in Los Angeles, um, there's two organizations that I'm, uh, that I'm a part of, Project Music Heals Us, that mm. was founded and run by Molly Carr and Andrew Jans. And um, we've performed on the East Coast quite a bit, West Coast. And also more recently, I've been involved in Street Symphony, which um, is an organization run by Vijay Gupta, uh, MacArthur Genius Grant recipient. And we play uh, at, at homeless shelters and missions on, on Skid Row, uh, right basically here in downtown. And in the past uh, week, sorry, two weeks ago, we, we gave a few performances of Mendelssohn, Ravel, uh, Rina Esmael, and more um, for audiences of this community. So these are, for me, uh, some of the most rewarding experiences, really, where you're able to play music and share the message and the power and the relatability of these composers um, for, for, for everyone. Uh, because music is for everyone, and that's something that I truly do believe. Um, and that's, that's part of my mission as an artist is to um, really uh, you know, walk the walk, so to speak, in sharing music and its power um, for every audience that I can. Okay, let's talk about Rachmaninoff. Now, first of all, I want to know if you have ever worked with Karen Hakobian before, before this time. No, only known of him and his wonderful, um, you know, output of music making. He's, he's a great pianist, not just mm -hmm. a great conductor. Absolutely. So what do you think about this project? I mean, you know, five concerti in one evening. This is a colossal project. It, it really is. And in some ways, I'm, I'm a little bit pleased that I am doing the first concerto when, when uh, everyone's fresh and the audience has, has not uh, experienced <laughs> two hours of, 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 of millions of notes yet. But uh, joking aside, uh, it, it's an incredible project and an inspiration really, you know, of course, by Lou uh, Mazel. And um, I think that, you know, to have all of these concerti in juxtaposition is a really fascinating way and insight into Rachmaninoff's psyche. And for me, at least, I'm, you know, I'm going to play my concerto and I'm going to run to the audience. And I have a seat already, you know, set up because I want to experience this progression of, of, of uh, pieces throughout Rachmaninoff's life and see all the different sides to him. Because let's face it, the concerti 
hold a very, very important aspect to Rachmaninoff because this these concertos were his vehicle to really making a living, to breaking into America. Um, the second concerto was his um, his saving grace. He was in a deep, dark depression until the second concerto was um, was composed and he became uh, very successful from it. The third concerto arguably is where he made his his, his real money. Um, you know, people like Horowitz toured with it, and of course, Rachmaninoff was getting royalties left and right. And also that built that mystique of him, and we have movies written about Rock 3. So um, more than even his solo piano music, I find his concertos to be truly a window into his soul. And I think that more than anything, this is going to be a really special evening. I would say. So let's talk about the Rachmaninoff number one. What is he saying within this music to you as the soloist? So this concerto is probably the most exciting one to me. For a number of reasons. Um, I remember when I was about 13 or 14 years old, I'm at the St. Louis Symphony concerts, and Stephen Huff is playing a, a concert mm. piano concerto. It's Rock One. And it's not the most famous, right? But I cannot forget after that first movement cadenza, it ends, and I turn to my dad and I say, That's what I want to do. Because you can listen to things on recordings and CDs, but to see it live and feel that visceral impact, nothing like it. And so Rock One has always stayed with me for that reason. And also for the duality of this piece. It's Opus One, but it was extensively revised after Rock Three, actually. So it has this aspect of being both an incredibly early work, but also a later work. Because he revised it, he reorchestrated it, he rewrote parts of it. So it's got this youthful spark and, and eagerness and earnestness, really, is what the word is. But it also has a maturity of construction. And it's not as, I'd say it's much more tightly wound in this revised version. So for me, when I'm playing it, I, I really feel both sides. It feels later than Rock 3, but it also feels as early as anything he wrote. And for me also, I think it's very poignant that in the, in, in the last year of his life, he did speak to the very famous pianist Vladimir Horowitz. And um, of all his requests, he said, please play my first concerto. Really? Um, yeah, yeah. So, um, you know, Rachmaninoff, um, this is an anecdote. And he did say that, you know, of all the pieces I want to hear, um, you play, you know, uh, and, and people play, it's Rock One. Because again, there's something about an Opus One, you know, that, mm-hmm. that I, I've spoken to other composers mm-hmm. about this actually in the past six months, where, I, where I've said, you know, what do you think about your first piece? And they all say, there's a fondness for it that you cannot escape. Right. And because it's your first piece. And um, it was not a success in its, in its first premiere, which crushed Rachmaninoff because he was so so passionate about it but you know it, it's through trial and tribulation that Rachmaninoff came to be who he was so that was a necessary step in his development interesting uh, it's, but, it's uh, like yeah. a novelist in their first book you know some feel that they never are able to attain that freshness again in in their later voice uh, yeah and um there are some things in Rock One that I I find even more remarkable than any of his other pieces. For example, the secondary melody of the third movement, I find it to be, um, in in the slow oasis middle section, I find that to be one of the most touching and at times vulnerable moments of Rachmaninoff that I I can think of. Um, Not to mention, again, the power of the first movement cadenza, which has stayed with me for over, you know, almost two decades since I first Mm -hmm. heard it by Mm -hmm. uh, Sir Huff, uh, Sir Stephen Huff at this point. Uh He's, He's been knighted, so... 
He's a fabulous pianist. I mean, yes. what, a, what a great watermark for you, you know, to have that experience. Mm-hmm. Um, <clears throat> so just before you're doing this performance on October 21st in New York City, you will be in Flint, Michigan, actually playing The Rock 3. That's right. So that'll be uh, in a week from tomorrow. So I'll be uh, going out there soon enough to play the D minor. And um, yeah, you know, these pieces uh, arguably are, are, are similar because they're the same composer. But for me, they can't be more different, actually. They, you know, Rock 3 was written for elephants. That was It was joked that way uh, by, <laughs> by a few pianists, including Rachmaninoff himself, that, you know, there, there, there's, a, there's a lot more of this thick chordal writing in Rock 3. In Rock 1, actually... It's more of this, um, at times, bony, sarcastic, and even sort of macabre uh, style juxtaposed with some of the most luscious music, which makes Rock 1, for me, a very, very interesting dynamic, again, in dualities. Rock 3, in my opinion, it feels like, again, you're on the top of a tsunami that just keeps going all the way to the end because of its, of its grand scale. But yeah, it's going to be interesting for me, again, in a, in a um, physical sense, keeping healthy, keeping very, very focused and fresh with two of the real monsters of the concerti repertoire, uh, back-to-back. This is so exciting. October 21st for all of us. I can't wait to be there. Dominic, if, you know, I know you're, you're young. You're at the beginning of your career, really. You're already teaching. You're giving back. You're being a mentor to many. But what is the overall legacy at this point that you would like to leave in your music making to the world? If you can answer that, I would say that for me, music making is for everyone and it should be shared um, without any reservations. And my goal is really to make classical music uh, as relatable and accessible, truly, to everyone that I, that I meet and find because the power of this music is as prevalent as when it was first composed, could have been hundreds of years ago. So. For me, uh, being able to share this, share the stories of genius, share the music that's so beautiful that I love uh, with everyone is, is my true goal and legacy, I would say. Alex is known for more than just her poetic language at the piano. She retains a theatrical depth in her one-woman performances where she combines music, memories, poetry, and nostalgia. It is a kaleidoscope of her life as punctuated by the music, and in her hands the keyboard thrives with the passion of her life to date.
As an international performer of stature, as a mother, and as a wife, and in her spare time, she is the head of piano studies at UCLA. Her writing has been published in the Los Angeles Times and the Washington Post. And I look forward to her memoir, Wait in the Fingertips, being released in 2023. Well, Enif Alex, welcome back to Center Stage. I mean, we've had the joy of speaking here before. I've watched you through the pandemic, reading your publications and championing your strength of performing during one of the most difficult times in the history of musical artists. And now it comes as no surprise that you are part of this incredible project of the rocking Rachmaninoff with Pegasus, the orchestra. Um, can you can you lead us into what masterpiece you are offering in this great concert? Thank you, Pamela. First of all, it's wonderful to see you again. And uh, yes, we had the pleasure of doing this in person. Um, and now we're all Zoom masters, as it yeah. were. <laughs> um, but I'll be playing the Rhapsody and the theme of Paganini by Rachmaninoff, you know, otherwise known as perhaps Concerto Number no. 5. You know, the last thing he wrote for piano and orchestra, in my opinion, the best one. So I'm very, very proud and very, very happy to share that because it's my personal favorite of the five works. It is. Did you have a choice in that with Pegasus? I did. When we were talking about the project, I just said right away, this is what I want to do. I love the kind of power you've got. (laughs) <laughs> so so tell me, as I understand it, what Rachmaninoff, when he fled Russia and he settled in Switzerland, he had a period of, of not composing for a while. And from what I gather, this was an inspiration to him, a, a simple theme, this theme of Paganini. That's right. Well, you know, many, there actually, it's not one theme in this piece. There are two major themes in this piece. Um, there is, of course, the Paganini that has been the basis of many, many, many pieces of music, including the most basic, well, I shouldn't say basic, but slightly simpler piano variations by Irina Berkovich variations that children play on the theme of Paganini. And actually, my daughter was just practicing them. So then when I started practicing the Rahmaninov, she's like, wait, mom, that's the same thing I'm playing. We're playing the same thing. Um, you know, and of course, it comes from the beloved caprice of Paganini. But Rahmaninov also uses the Dies Irae, the Day of the Dead Gregorian chant that he uses in so much of his music. And I believe it's a musical cell that you can trace almost in every single one of his works. But he masterfully combines that with a Paganini theme and together as interwoven as they are, they go through this incredible journey, masterfully architectured journey where really there isn't one extra note. It's just so perfectly done. And of course, it all leads to the beloved 18th variation, which is actually the Rahmaninoff theme upside down. Um, It's the Paganini Caprice inverted and that beloved theme that everybody waits for, the big Hollywood, you know, variation that everyone loves. All it is, all it is, is the inversion of the Paganini theme. And, you know, it's it's interesting how composers have used that element of inverting. I know I was just speaking to Reed Tetzloff about this in the Beethoven 110 and the same kind of idea, you know, in, in certain movements. It's fascinating how they turn it literally inside out. They, they renew, I guess. So do you have a favorite uh, variation yourself? No, because the whole thing is really, it's, it's like, you know, when you look at a building, we don't really think, well, I like this floor better than that one, or I like that element better than that one. It's all a whole. And what I love about the piece is its architecture. And of course, it has this incredible energy that propels it forward um, from beginning to end. It's just this nonstop buildup of energy and excitement. And I think it's just so eloquent. It's so elegant. It's just held 
in a, in a way. And I think Rahmaninoff's style changed. I think, of course, after the self-imposed exile that happened for him just right at the time of the revolution, he did write differently. And it's funny because for a while his music was banned in the Soviet Union. And of mm -hmm. course, even my mother in conservatory was taught that, you know, everything he wrote after he left Russia is garbage, of course, because how can it not be? Because he wasn't no longer, <laughs> you know, I mean, this is what people were taught <laughs> for a long time. But in fact, I think, for example, um, I love his Sonata Number no. 2, the original version. I'm not a big fan of the revised version. Rahmaninoff loved to revise himself and to cut things out. His original version of Sonata Number no. 2, in my view, is this style of writing that's almost unhinged and improvisational and so rich and unedited. And in that, it's just absolutely magic. And there's so many layers. And I recorded that. That was on my first CD, The Sound wow. of Curtains. Um, but the Rhapsody and the theme of Paganini stems from the Corelli variations. It's a totally different style of writing. Okay. It's much more economical. It's more held. It's refined. And it's self-edited. He practices self-editing a lot in those days. I think it's, um, it's masterful. And it shows his journey as a composer. Wow. Okay. So he, he fell into a new country. He fell into a new voice, so to speak. I don't know um, if it's a new voice. I just think it's the development and continuation of his. So how many of the concerti have you actually performed? I have played three of the five. You know, Rahman and a concerti are for me different in that you have to learn these early on. And I think, I mean, you don't have to, but it certainly helps to live with it for as long as possible. Because you just have to be free. You have to be swimming in this in a way that's, that's full of ease and spontaneity. And that takes a lot of time, a long time of knowing and being. I would think so. And just the sheer physicality that Rachmaninoff gives to the pianist. I mean, it's such a challenge, isn't it? Well, you know, I think Rachmaninoff writes deeply pianistically. Yeah, there are many notes, but the way that they come together at the piano physically is so natural. You know, there are many people that, oh, Rachmaninoff is the most difficult composer for the piano. I don't actually think that's true mm -hmm. because I think it's extremely pianistic. It just mm -hmm. fits. You know, I've been blessed with hands that are that have a large span. I can reach C to F. That's together. I believe he reached C to G. Um, so awesome. that helps. <laughs> <laughs> awesome. Do do pianists as a rule feel compelled to go to Rachmaninoff to prove themselves in some way, you know? I never had. I can't associate with that feeling because to me it's not musical. I think that feeling to me is more of an athletic thing and mm -hmm. I don't do music that way. Mm -hmm. um, so I don't see it, but I'm sure they have. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm sure I, as well. I don't like to look at music that way. I don't, I think that is a that's sort of an athletic, kind of Olympic way of looking at things, which is, in my view, completely anti-musical. Okay, okay. Very interesting. So looking at Rachmaninoff as a composer, I mean, just generally, be, besides the concerti, what is this indelible mark that he has left? What, what is this voice of his, this inner voice? I mean, is it the, the searching or the unhinged quality you're talking about in the Sonata Number no. 2? Or is it, is it just lush romanticism? Um, I think he's so much more complex than a lot of people give him credit for. Mm -hmm. And then, of course, there are haters who, I mean, they don't like him because he's so popular. He remains deeply beloved by absolutely everyone. His music has influenced Hollywood. Yes. You know, not too many composers have that kind of reach. And I think he's sui generis, one of a kind. So Rahmaninoff, you know, he 
in his music, he's got incredible complexity, compositional complexity, polyphony that's masterful, a knowledge and love of the piano that mm -hmm. is one of the most complete in any composer. But at the same time, you know, if Rachmaninoff had more time, if he didn't have to practice seven hours a day, which he did, um, after he left Russia and he became a pianist, he had to make a living as a pianist. He didn't begin to practice until he was in his early 40s, you know, really practice, because he had to tour. That's how he made a living. Um, so he started to build up repertoire and to perform. And, you know, if he had more time, his two small operas are A Miserly Night and Aleko show an incredibly deep composer and a knower of the human voice. Is that a word? <laughs> Somebody deeply knowledgeable about right. the human voice. His symphonies are incredible. I mean, symphony number three, very different from symphony number two. It shows, again, kind of more pared down, more focused, a little bit more patrician in some ways. Um, there's so many sides to him. He, you know, the place where he comes from, the steps of Russia, the bells that are omnipresent in his yes. come from his yes. upbringing, from hearing church bells, because, you know, Novgorod, where he was from, I've played there. I remember steps and flatlands, and when you hear church bells, you hear them for a long, long time. And interestingly enough, this summer I went to Greece and I was hiking in the mountains and there was a tiny church that so tiny was the size of like a nine foot piano. It was teeny tiny. And it had a rope hanging and a bell. And I actually rang that bell and I heard the bell just going across. And I thought, oops, I mean, there's some, something's going to happen. So we better get out of here. I don't know how <laughs> to ring that bell. But, you know, then I thought that motion of ringing a bell, I always bring that up when my students play Rachmaninoff, to get the sound, to get a relaxed big sound. You can't be tight. You have to be completely free and fluid. And that giant bell-like sound that just needs to roll off. So I finally had the experience of ringing a bell, a church bell by myself, which was really cool. But, you know, he heard that all the time. He grew up with that. Um, and I think that's that's so present. But his music is so cosmopolitan, too, and it's so deeply sophisticated. It's not just these great tunes that everybody loves. There's so much more than that, the textures, just the control of atmosphere and change and kind of unpredictability and knowing how to, I don't want to say manipulate, but yes, mm -hmm. how, to, how to manipulate your listener where they expect something, but you give them something else entirely. That's, it takes mastery. So let's all get our tickets for October 21st at Lincoln Center for Pegasus the Orchestra and a night of rocking Rachmaninoff piano concerti. I want to thank my guests today, Dominic Cayley and Ina Felix. And a reminder to all of you that part two of this interview will air next week and feature conductor Karen Hakobian with more information about this exciting concert. Please go to centerstagewithpamelacoon.com for more of my shows. And in the meantime, stay safe out there. This is Pamela Kuhn, and the curtain is now down on Center Stage. <laughs>